Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. It is 8.08 in the Twin Cities. Time now for one of my absolute favorite guests, the one and only Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University joining us tonight from Ladysmith, Wisconsin. Yes. And can you give us like a little weather report from there? Well, it is colder than the Twin Cities, of course. It's a little bit further north. Um, it's looking like it's about, I'm thinking, let's see right now, look at my thermometer. We have two jokes here. The real temperature is, is about four below, but the thermometer outside of our house has been stuck at 78 for years. and so, <laughs> so, so we always kid and say it's only 78 here, but it's also, I don't know what it's like in the Twin Cities, it's a crystal clear sky tonight. Wow, okay. Well, it is, uh, snow is on its way, and it is, um, I'll, I'll give the forecast again at, at the bottom of the hour, but um, it's cold, <laughs> it's going, it's getting colder. Yeah. Uh, but listen, so much as always to talk about, and obviously the, the two big stories politically, uh, obviously the end of the shutdown, and we're going to get to that in, in just a bit, and, and the consequences and the fallout of that, but the indictment of Roger Stone, the longtime confidant of President Donald Trump, uh, this is somebody who is, to say the least, a, a character, a flamboyant, somebody who worked for Richard Nixon, has a tattoo of Richard Nixon on his back, uh, liked to brag about the fact that he was involved, that he was a trickster. Uh, and he he also said that he was likely to get indicted and he was what stands out to you about this indictment what what are, what are some of the takeaways well, there's two things. First off, by the way, um, I did read the, read the indictment, um, which is really quite fascinating to look at here. But what, but what you're right, he's a, about a three-decade um, confidant, uh, advisor to, to Donald Trump. And when you read through the, the criminal indictment against him, in many ways, the indictment places him, Stone, very center in terms of the cooperation with the Russian government. And what I mean by that, there are listed in the indictment emails, conversations that he has uh, with WikiLeaks, um, where trying to find out, you know, you know, but Julie, through Julian Assange, what other type of information that the may, they may have, that the Russians may have in terms of um, about the Democratic Party, in terms of Hillary Clinton. Um, and so what you really see in here um, is also him being directed by people not specifically named in the Trump organization um, to go and find out what this information is. Right. And so it, it gets us even more central than Manafort, for example, or Cohen, in terms of the centrality of the of the Trump or the Trump campaign, I should say, in terms of its interrelationship with Russians. And at the same time, what we also see in this criminal complaint is efforts that uh, Roger Stone undertook to try to conceal that relationship, to try to encourage witnesses, or at least at least one witness, to lie about it. So this is all important because this connects us exceedingly close to the president himself. 
In terms of – and let's go back here. So so the Russians um, hack the DNC and, and get this cache of emails. Correct. WikiLeaks gets a hold of it. Uh, someone in the Trump campaign, and there's certainly some people who think that the unnamed person in, in, in – in one part of the uh, indictment is actually the president himself, who was then obviously the candidate, Correct. Uh, says to Roger Stone, hey, someone says to Roger Stone, hey, uh, they've got all this stuff because the DNC had made it public. They said, we've been hacked. Right. Russia's got all our emails and then WikiLeaks has them. One thing that, that I'm interested in is that that's not what he's charged with. Is that a crime? It, it may be unethical, unsavory, but is – the, the indictment doesn't say that that part of it is illegal, does it? No, it doesn't. Um, it's, that's not illegal. What he's being charged with is lying. With the lying and obstruction of justice. Yes. I mean, it may be, it may be unseemly. It may be an unethical. Um, but if he's being directed to go find out what WikiLeaks already knows um, and perhaps to find out what other information they may be ready to, to dump um, in the course of the campaign. Because remember, everybody kept anticipating that WikiLeaks was going to make a second or a third, I can't remember now, a second or a third big drop in terms of additional information supposedly embarrassing about the Democrats or Hillary Clinton. Um, um, again, all of that um, would be legal, not ethical, um, most would say, but that would be okay. What he does instead is to try to cover up um, all that information in terms of what he did. And that's the part of the criminal indictment that's really fascinating. Again, I don't know if you had a chance to look at it also. I did, yeah. Yeah, but what's interesting about it is not a surprise, of course, Stone, after um, the indictment says, um, I never, I never – I never did X, Y, and Z. I never had contact with the Russians. Um, I never, um, I never lied about this. And you read the indictment, and they basically have transcripts of his emails and correspondence, um, and then they're juxtaposing it with statements that he's made. Um, it's a pretty um, um, compelling indictment in terms of laying out the bill of particulars. But you're right; it's all about what? It's about lying and obstruction of justice, and not about the underlying behavior. Right. So, because because I thought that that was so interesting, and and obviously these emails were stolen. So right. someone at the Trump campaign is directing Roger Stone, saying, "Hey, check it out. I mean, we we, we want to find out what this is." And it's obvious that that Stone had access to that beforehand, but that part of it is not illegal. The lying is, or allegedly lies, but as you said, the documentation is there. What is there wiggle room here for the Trump campaign to get out of this because it's not illegal or is there certainly evidence in this document or in this indictment that the lies are are what's going to get you? Well, there's sort of two observations here. You know, one of them is, and I, and I tell my law students about this, you know, when, when I teach, is that we can have sort of secondary liability and primary liabilities. And what I mean by that, right now, or sort of for secondary offenses and primary offenses, secondary liabilities are things like aiding and abetting um, or conspiracy to obstruct justice, things like that, or they can be things in terms of, again, obstruction of justice or, or lying about something. Those are kind of like secondary issues. The primary ones are when you actually get to what? You actually get to the theft. You actually get to things like embezzlement or whatever it may be. 
right now we're still looking at stone mostly what I'm going to call sort of at the secondary level. It's either maybe um, aiding in something or it's obstruction of justice or lying. But, but the criminal indictment, his, um, the, when I also go back to Paul Manafort, I bring in Cohen and bring in a couple of others. All of them are hinting at not just um, um, secondary types of issues, but hinting at there are some primary laws perhaps being violated also. Um, and those are what? The actual theft of certain materials. Because, yes, at the end of the day, you know, um, you know hacking into and stealing um, documents from somebody else, is, that's, that's still wrong. I mean, as far as I know, right. um, that's still wrong. Um, and if, in fact, for example, um, the Trump campaign accepted money from foreign nationals, you know, from Russians and so forth. That's a felony under, under U.S. election law. Um, all those are being sort of hinted at. Also, if perhaps um, the Russian government or Russian officials gave money to the Trump campaign in expectation of something, or if Trump uh, is negotiating or his team is negotiating building Trump Towers, um, uh, a Trump Tower in Moscow at the same time, that he's engaging in some type of um, um, work with the Russian government regarding the elections, all of that speaks to perhaps bribery. Now, I'm certainly not making those accusations today, but those are the things that seem to be hinted at in terms of, of looking at something like Roger Stone's um, criminal, you know, criminal complaint, that it's alleging that he's kind of what, you know, you know, somewhere in this larger picture of where there's some primary wrongs that have been committed. All right. We're chatting with Professor David Schultz. We do have to take a quick break, but I want to follow up with this because uh, it sounds like from Professor Schultz's reading of this, and this he's read an awful lot of criminal indictments, uh, it sounds like there's more ahead, and I want to get his opinion on that. So keep it here, folks. You are listening to News Talk 830. More with David Schultz after this. It is 8.20 in the Twin Cities. Oh, we're down to four degrees now. Uh, chatting with Professor David Schultz about the indictment of Roger Stone, President Trump's longtime confidant, longtime associate. Uh, it sounds as if what you're saying is the way you read this document, and granted, you, you must have read hundreds if not thousands of criminal complaints mm-hmm. you know, in your career. It sounds as if you feel there's more ahead coming from the special prosecutor. Yeah, I do. I mean, in two different ways. First, again, as I was mentioning before the break, in terms of the fact that at some point I'm expecting somebody to be charged with, again, sort of a primary offense, you know, a primary offense in terms of perhaps um, um, embezzlement, um, um, bribery, um, um, illegally um, taking um, um, money from a foreign national for the purpose of trying to influence a U.S. election, um, there could be theft in terms of maybe connecting it directly to maybe WikiLeaks. I don't know. So that's that's one. But the second thing also, what we're starting to see here, is is almost a circle being formed. You know, is that you know we, again we got Cohen, we got Manafort, we have um, Stone here. Um, we're getting. Um, and these are people who are very close to the president of the United States. Yes, and they're and again making no allegations today because we have no evidence at this point regarding the president's involvement, although a lot of these redacted documents seem to be suggesting that orders are coming from, you know, some critical person. Um, now, that could, be the, that could be Donald Trump as candidate. It could have been Donald Trump Jr. It could be Jared Kushner. We don't know. But, but it's suggesting that there are 
um, some additional higher-ups or additional people who are eventually going to be tied into this with future indictments. Right. And it sounds, and, and if you look at, at all the other indictments that have come before, it's the it's the cover-up. <laughs> yes. it, it's the lying that's the problem, which is sort of, that, of course, echoes of, of Watergate. It's the cover-up. It's the lying about it that's the problem here. Yes, yes. Yeah. Again, as I tell my law students sometimes is that, you know, that in our private lives, we, you know, you know, we're not supposed to lie, we're supposed to tell the truth. But when we're put under oath, um, um, then it clearly violates federal law. And, you know, we have all these false swearing statutes. And even if what you did was not illegal, the primary offense was not illegal, the primary action wasn't illegal, um, might be embarrassing, it might be unethical, it might be dirty, I said that once you get to swearing under oath, um, you have to tell the truth. And, and that's oftentimes what, what trips a lot of people up. A lot of the Watergate was about, um, about you're right, it's about the cover-up, although there were primary offenses there too. Um, but that's an, and that's an important thing to bring up here, is that, is that rarely do you see um, people lying about something um, if there's not a belief that there's some kind of primary underlying offense um, that also is a problem. Right, and, and so many people as well. One of the things that, that was striking about the arrest of Roger Stone on Friday was the fact that it was one of these pre-dawn raids with, you know, machine gun toting FBI agents, as opposed to uh, in a lot of white collar cases, it's like uh, you've been indicted and you can surrender at the courthouse next Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you make? And, and Stone has been very critical of that. He says he was treated like El Chapo. He says he doesn't have a valid uh, passport. Uh, he's not going anywhere. What do you make of the fact they did it that way? Well, two things. First, I would say that we probably should never create an exemption for white-collar criminals to treat them. But oftentimes, that's the way it goes down. You know that. I know. I know it all the time like that. Um, um, you know, but there's a class inequity there. But, but the reason why, in this case here, why, why they probably did it is fear of, of what? If they've already got him for, for – for, okay, I'll get to second. Here. If they already are charging him with what? Lying and covering up. I think their concern is, is that he might destroy more documents or he might um, um, tip others. Um, he might do other things to try to cover the trail. And so I think that's exactly why they did it the way they did, because of concern that if they gave him several days, he would have an opportunity to be able to do other things um, right. in terms of, again, document destruction, purge computers, who knows what it may be. Right, and there was also an allegation that he pressured somebody else exactly. to not be forthcoming exactly. and to lie. So, so like you think that's what that was about? Right. So when you have that kind of a pattern where you've got somebody who's engaging in what looks like witness tampering, um, again, encouraging other people to lie under oath, um, you have enough reason to think at this point that you can't sort of treat him and play fairly because this person may not play fairly um, and, 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 not, and not do that stuff. And then after, again, he's, he's charged and arrested, you know, he made a, a very defiant, I will never testify against Trump, which I want to come back and talk about. That's an interesting statement here, but it's all suggesting that he is not going to be a very cooperative person. Right. And, and, but he's facing, I mean, these are, these are very, very, very serious charges th- that he is looking at. Uh, and he's going to be arraigned, I guess, uh, early next week. And he was absolutely defiant. 
of course, you know, Paul Manafort was that way as well. Then he flipped and then he apparently didn't flip. And now he's even in even more trouble. Right, right, um, right. Now, I was going to say, uh, the Stone is what? Is he in his, he's in his 70s, isn't yes. he? Yes. Yeah. Um, if Stone were to be convicted of all these charges, um, he will never see daylight again. I mean, he's going, he's going to jail for the rest of his life because um, wow. they're, they're significantly serious at this point. But his statement about, I thought that was kind of interesting, where he said, I will never testify um, against Donald Trump. Um, I read that in two different ways. You know, one of them is to say that he knows something and he's not going to flip. Um, and it's a signal he sent to the President of the United States. The second, and someone asked me earlier today, and I actually talked a little bit about this on Facebook just briefly today, too, is that he may be angling at this point for a presidential pardon um, so that um, he can get so he doesn't have to face these charges. Um, so, right. but, but in either case, especially— and, and, and a lot of people think that Paul Manafort's angling for that as well. Exactly, exactly. Now, as I point out— Which the president can do. That's right, that's right. Now, and you, I, can you, can you, can you— Pardon somebody even before they've been convicted? Yes, yes. Richard, okay. Richard Nixon was pardoned by Gerald Ford back in 1975, even though he had never been um, um, charged with a crime. He was listed right. as an unindicted co-conspirator. So yes, but only for a federal crime. However, and this is, this is an interesting thing here now, is that if the president were to pardon um, um, Roger Stone, um, at that point, Roger Stone could not refuse to testify um, um, against um, you know, to Congress or, or in court because you only have the ability to refuse to testify if you face prosecution. Um, and if you now can't face prosecution, you lose that ability because you can't plead the Fifth Amendment at that point also. So, wow. this, so this sets up a different dilemma. If he actually does get pardoned um, by the president, um, then the prosecutor and Congress could say, well, you're going to come in and talk. Then if he refuses to talk, he's in contempt of court. And the, my, to the best of my knowledge, um, the president's not going to be able to pardon him at that point for contempt of court. Stone goes to jail anyhow. So there's a lot of danger um, in what's being played here. But definitely, I think in terms of the fact that he sent the signal by saying, I will not testify against Trump suggests to me that he, he knows something else, um, and he's basically telling the president, um, I'm with you. Do something to help me. Okay, wow. All right, fascinating stuff here. Uh, we do have to take a break to give everybody some weather, even though uh, I'm not sure everybody's going to want to hear it, but uh, you probably need to because it is going to be, uh, as Sloan Said, said so eloquently, quite an unpleasant stretch coming up in the next few days. And then we'll have more with Professor David Schultz. We're going to talk about the shutdown, the end of the shutdown, the consequences, the fallout, and, and what this means to the presidency. And is it only going to be three weeks? Will we go through this all over again? So keep it right here. You're listening to News Talk 830. It is 834 in the Twin Cities. We are at four degrees. Chatting here with Professor David Schultz. Uh, your thoughts on the end of the shutdown, the president calling it a great victory for himself. A lot of analysts, though, including uh, the conservative analyst Ann Coulter, saying that is simply not the case, that the president, in fact, caved, that Nancy Pelosi won this round. W- what are your thoughts? It's really hard to see any victory that Donald Trump achieved from any of this, because where we are right now 
is that the proposal that the Democrats and the Congress put before the president right before the shutdown is essentially where we are now in terms of what was adopted. Um, the president didn't get money for the wall. Um, he really didn't get anything at all that he was asking for whatsoever. And it's, again, it's hard for me to find any signs of victory, on top of which, if we look at public opinion polls, um, his support among independents eroded, his overall support um, eroded, and there's even evidence that within his base, at least short term, um, some support for him there cracked also. So on, on so many different grounds, um, it's very, very hard to find really anything that suggests that the President of the United States came away from this with um, something that anybody could call a victory. Right. Um, obviously, uh, they've set sort of another deadline uh, in mid-February uh, for some kind of negotiate, negotiation to be completed uh, for a deal to be worked out. I mean, do you think they're going to get to a deal? Well, one of the things that you would hope is that every time a shutdown occurs and the person or body that's blamed for it um, um, for the shutdown usually learns for quite a while not to try to bring another shutdown again. Um, one would hope that in this situation here, the President of the United States um, realizes that he's probably not going to get the wall in terms of the way he desc- he's described it recently as a you know the concrete or metal slat wall, and that he's going to actually have to offer something um, in, um, to the Democrats, and in return, um, it's probably not going to be something in terms of a real wall or anything that he envisions in terms of it. So, so you have to think that, but I don't know. I mean, this is this is Donald Trump. You know, this is somebody who has broken the mold on so many different things. And I'm not sure um, if, if yet he's learned that lesson. And the question becomes, to what extent will he feel that he has to do something to um, um, get back in something approaching the good graces with Ann Coulter and the Fox and the Fox News people of the world? So everything tells me there should be something that they, they, they don't go back to this in three weeks. But everything equally tells me that none of the lessons were learned um, from the last 35 days. Um, in terms of um, the options, he said either there'll be another shutdown or else I will use my executive powers to divert funding from other agencies, other causes, emergency relief, and the Army Corps of Engineers, what, what have you. In order to, to build the wall or, as he said, the barrier, it, the, the terms are, are shifting a little bit. But can he legally do that? No. No, he can't. Even though he claims he has authority under the National, National Emergencies Act, um, we st- um, the, the case law is actually pretty clear here, is that we have a basic proposition in the law that says the president may not spend money for purposes unless, it's, unless, it's, unless he is legally authorized to do so. That's a basic principle of, of constitutional law, on top of which there's a 1974 law, um, the, the Congressional Budget Act, which places stipulations and limits on how presidents can use money. And then on top of which there are real serious questions that I think even his administration Republicans are worried about, is that if the president were to declare that building the wall is a national emergency and he has to do it. 
Um, and if he doesn't get beaten in court, which I think he would be getting beaten in court on this one in terms of you know, the authorization, he sets up a dangerous precedent. What if now, and I know we're going to talk about Kamala Harris in a little bit, what if now a President Kamala Harris were to say in, let's say, a few years from now that it is a national emergency that we need to um, address the problem of immigration, and I'm going to divert money for that. Or it's a national emergency to divert money for the purposes of, of solving global warming or helping the poor, et cetera, et cetera. The president would be setting up, I think, such an enormous precedent that I think there's lots of Republicans who are equally concerned that they wouldn't want him to do that. All right. But he could certainly – I mean, it, it sounds as if he's poised to do that, right. uh, and it sounds like what you're saying is that that would be subject to immediate legal challenges, could, which could drag on ad infinitum. It could, it could, and so, so he, so this, this is no easy one for him to pull off here. I like to tell people there's a famous case in American constitutional law called Youngstown versus Sawyer. It's the middle of the of the Korean War. Um, Truman is the president of the United States, and the steel mills privately owned, there's going to be a strike, a strike that's going to shut down steel production. And if you think about it, in the middle of a war, to have steel production halted, that's a pretty significant national emergency. And the president of the United States orders all the steel mills to be nationalized so that he can avert the strike. The Supreme Court um, refuses to let the president of the United States to do that. And I said, I mentioned that because in the middle of a war to basically um, turn against the president or to say you can't do that, that's pretty significant, and that's a powerful precedent that's out there. And I think the same thing would apply here is that the president doesn't have the legal authorization to be able to do what he does uh, under the National Emergencies Act, and he would more than likely lose, and if not lose, um, um, at least right away, um, it'll drag out for a very, very long time in terms of the site. Right. Um, so I, I guess it remains to be seen. I guess to me, I just find it very difficult to believe that there's going to be some kind of compromise arrived at. I do too. I and and I, I don't, you know, I, I it, it looks like the Democrats have all the cards. They do. They do at this point. Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats have enormous amount of tools at their disposal. They've got the budgetary powers. They've got the investigatory powers. They've got statutory powers. And after this fight, what they have also um, public opinion on their side. And, and what this battle did was dramatically weaken the president of the United States. Because if we think in terms of one of the powers of the presidency, it's not a constitutional power, but it's the power to persuade. Um, he was unable to persuade um, Republicans, Democrats, and public opinion to go along with him on this one. And so he walks out of this battle dramatically weaker than he went in. Now, I do, and, and I don't think we saw anything ending, ending, this, ending this, um, this shutdown that suggested language, and I agree with you, of, of a basis for a compromise. Having said that, I want to throw out something um, that, that we've talked about on this show before and I've talked about for 15 years, is that you know, we've had three shutdowns in Minnesota, you know, so we know what shutdowns mean in this state. Um, and I've talked blue in my face in terms of saying that we ought to have an automatic continuing resolution law in place in Minnesota. So if the, so if the agreements break down, funding keeps in. 
this is a great time for the federal government to be thinking about that also, that if we had a law like that on the books at the federal level, we could never go into a shutdown. Right. Well, and, and just, you know, the, these people who kept working and have kept working, and they still haven't gotten their pay. Right. I mean, it's just, uh, it's unbelievable. And, and many of the, I mean, these are not, these are people making, the in terms of the TSA screeners, between twenty five and maybe $45,000. You know, it, it's just, it's unbelievable what they've had to go through. Um, it, it really is. One can certainly hope that this doesn't happen again for their sake and, and for the sake of all those federal employees and you know, people like farmers who were dependent. I heard stories about farmers. Um, Senator Smith was, was telling me, uh, Tina Smith was saying a story. She got a letter from a farmer who had gotten a, a large check to reimburse him for the payment uh, of his the sale of his calves. But yet part of that money, because he owed some money to, I guess, the Department of Agriculture or federal program, he couldn't cash the check because there was nobody in the Department of Agriculture to – notarize it or sign it. You know, it's just, it's... Um... Exactly. This is also the time of the year, and people who are farmers out there know what I'm talking about. This is the time of year also where farmers are doing their planning for the spring, and there's a lot of work they do oftentimes with the Department of Agriculture. I mean, all of this got shut down, and on top of which, we know that what? Most Americans, you know, are living barely one paycheck, you know, absolutely ahead of, um, of, of, of head of debt or something like that. So on so many different scores... Um, the other thing that would be a great law if we didn't pass the continuing resolution one is the basic, which I think we really have to do, would be something that says that in the event of something like this happens again, that everybody who's required to work as an essential employee still has to be paid. All right. All right. Listen, we're going to take a break. When we come back, um, we're going to talk about uh, one of the new entrants into the presidential race, Senator Kamala Harris of California, and also a very interesting article uh, in the New York Times right now about the fact that the president, you know, all these all the Democrats are thinking about running. He obviously has to run a reelection campaign at a time when he is significantly weakened, when many of his associates that, that helped him engineer this remarkable win of his in 2016 have been indicted and are no longer in a position to help him. And there's even some buzz of a possible primary challenge to the president. So we're going to take all that up when we come back. You're listening to News Talk 830. More with David Schultz after this. 847 in the Twin Cities. Some final uh, moments here with Professor David Schultz. Um, when we talk about the presidential race and we're seeing you know Democrats enter it at, at every moment, let's talk briefly about President Trump's reelection hopes. And he obviously hasn't had a lot of time to focus on running for reelection. It's still very, very early. But are, are, should he be concerned or, or should the people around him be concerned? Well, yes, he should be. Although, one, I should point out, he's, his campaign has actually raised a lot of money. So he's got a lot of money there. But you have to be concerned in the sense that you're right. The essential team that he had in place two years ago, um, many of them have been indicted. Um, many of them have, are, are, under, are under suspicion, perhaps, of, of indictment for some kind of charges. And so this is a complication. Second, as the New York Times points out today, he really doesn't have a game plan at this point, doesn't really have a, a, a strategy in terms of running. He's assuming that he's not going to face challengers. He's doing very little um, in terms of enlarging his, his base. Um, he might still survive, get through the Republican primaries and get the nomination, of which would be 
probably you know not a surprise. It's hard to oust a sitting president, but with his collapse of support among independents and Democrats galvanized against him, um, the the game plan for him running a successful presidential campaign, um, which he really has to be starting to think about, you know, pretty soon now. Um, um, it's it's a daunting task for him. Right, and 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 you know this this article points out that of course it was. Uh, our neighboring state of Wisconsin, also Pennsylvania and Michigan, it was it was the narrow wins he pulled off in those states that allowed him to amass the enough electoral votes to beat Hillary Clinton, even though she amassed two million more popular votes than he did. And, and that's the trick. So obviously we will um, – th- that all remains to be seen. But let, let's talk about uh, the entrance of Senator Kamala Harris, somebody who obviously has star power – uh, she's not you – know, she's relatively new to the national scene. What are your thoughts about her entrance into the race and the kind of attention she's getting? She's getting an enormous amount of attention. In some ways, she reminds me of um, Barack Obama back you know, when he ran in 2008. You know, he hits the circuit or he hits the um, national attention you know, with his famous speech back, was back in 2004 at the Democratic National Convention, runs for the Senate gets elected, um, and, and really comes out of somewhat out of the nowhere to, you know, to win the presidency. And Harris has that same type of buzz right now also, you know, right. that, that she seems to be absolutely everywhere. And you know, a few weeks ago, I would have put her at maybe the second tier. You know, but now, you know, if we look at just the way the coverage is and the, the polls that are suggesting she might very well be the front runner for the Democrats, and she's poised in a very good position because one of the things that changes next year is that California, which traditionally have its, has its primary in June, doesn't really matter in terms of what happens with California because usually the nominations are wrapped up, has moved its, its primary up to up to March. And in fact, Oh, that's right. You mentioned that before, and, and yes. that's, that, that's a biggie. That's a biggie because the California, uh, at the time that the Iowa caucuses will be taking place, California will be doing the early voting for its primary. Um, so this is pretty significant because California is a big state. It's an expensive state. And guess what? She's from California. Right. She's going to be significantly advantaged um, in terms of having been, if people don't know this, senator from there. Um, and she was also the attorney general in California. She was a very, very... So in other words, she's run for statewide office. Right. She's very well known there. Are. And so for people, for example, like Amy Klobuchar, if she decides to run, um, the Iowa strategy is no longer as sound a strategy um, as it used to be with the shift in the California primary. Right. But Iowa can still be that launching pad. Exactly. It can be. It can be. And, and so this is going to be interesting to see how this plays out because you will have almost simul- – I'm going to say almost simultaneously within about a week of one another. If you've, you've got Iowa, then you, of course, have New Hampshire the following week, and you have the, the, the early voting for California going on at the same right. time. Um, that's a lot to have happen you know, in a matter of about 10 days. And also Minnesota will have a primary. It will have a primary, um, and, and so a lot of things are going to change next year. But right now, again, it just seems that everybody's describing uh, Kamala Harris as the um, as, 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 as perhaps 
the, you know, the, the, the star power for the Democrats this year. All right. Well, I remember when um, Barack Obama, I think, had a book signing. Yes. This was very early on. And there were lines around the block in downtown Minneapolis where he was signing. And I thought, wow, I mean, there's something here. There's a sort of star power. And and it does appear that that Kamala Harris has that, whereas, you know, you've got people like Kirsten Gillibrand, who many people still blame for Al Franken's resignation. Um, You've got Elizabeth Warren, who I think really has trouble with this, the the DNA Mm -hmm. test that, that, you know, she felt would be a, a great victory for her when, in fact, it showed that she was 10 generations removed from, from having Native ancestry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it, it does. And also Kamala Harris is, is a fresh face. She's a fresh face, which means she can mean a lot to a lot of people. But she also excites the Obama coalition. Um, and what I mean by that is that she's significantly younger than some of the other candidates. Um, she will... Um, she's female. She's a person of color. Um, she excites a lot of the critical constituencies within the Democratic Party, much in the same way that Barack Obama did back in 08. Right. And I believe that the caucuses, the Iowa caucuses uh, in 2020 are on February 3rd. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a year away, but it's just a year away, basically. Uh, how quickly do people have to jump in? If they're going to run. If you're not in, I'm going to say by, I'm going to say at the very, very latest, I'm going to say by May, you're not going to have much of a chance. And I say that because it's not just simply saying I declare one off, drive down to Iowa, you know, pay your fee and that's it. Um, You have to what? You have to be raising money, building an organization. Um, You have to raise your name profile. Um, This takes months and months to do this. For anybody who's ever actually been involved in, like, say, the caucuses in Minnesota, knowing how to just to bring people out for caucuses takes a while. Even if you've never raised money politically, many of us have raised money for what our churches or other organizations. Right. It takes time to do that stuff. So, so I think May's the drop dead. In fact, it may be even earlier than that. Right. And, you know, Hillary Clinton raised $1.4 billion, billion dollars, uh, between direct contributions between PAC money, between the party fundraising mechanisms. I mean, that's that's an extraordinary amount of money. Donald Trump raised significantly less, I and mean, it was under a billion dollars. But still, it's that kind of money. And also, I would think that at some point, with all of these Democrats getting into the race, just tying up the resources in some place like Iowa, that's going to be tough. Making sure that you're the one that gets all the volunteers and all, all, all the good state senators, making sure that they're not already committed to people. Exactly. And so there's a race to be first or the, the, or the front runner because if you wait to, take, to be later on, people are going to say, I already gave or we're already supporting so-and-so. Now, what's interesting also this week, I've seen a couple of hints. I, I don't have clear numbers yet that after Kamala Harris declared she was running, Several million dollars came in immediately to her campaign. Wow. Yes, I I, I did see that as well. Well, listen, Professor David Schultz, always a pleasure. Stay warm up there in Ladysmith, Wisconsin, and be careful. We will. Thank you very much, and good night to everybody. Absolutely. The one and only David Schultz. And please uh, check out his blog, Schultz's Take. It's always great, uh, always insightful, and it's always a pleasure to have him. Uh, always so knowledgeable on so many issues. Um, I do want to give a shout-out to the producers of this show, We've got Susan Blanche, who set this all up. 
Uh, also, Jonathan Lowe and Devin Marshall, who are producers in studio and running the board, uh, keeping us on. Uh, I want to thank all of them as well, and also thank you for listening this evening. Uh, I do want to invite you to tune in to WCCO-TV Sunday morning, 6 a.m., 10.30 a.m. I'll be there bright and early uh, starting at 6 a.m. on the air uh, with Mike Augustinak for the latest on this pretty brutal weather forecast. Uh, And then at 10.30 a.m., I'll be joined by Congressman Jim Hagedorn, who won the first congressional race Uh, He is going to be a live guest. Uh, He's a strong supporter of the president's, so I can't wait to hear from him. Also, we will also have uh, Jennifer Carnahan, who is the chair of the Minnesota Republican Party. We've had many Democrats on in recent weeks. Keep it here. News Talk 830. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseballs and boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.